0: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org privacypiracy. Hey Murray, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show today is about sociological view of privacy. And we have a wonderful guest coming to us from the Chicago suburbs. And she has written a book called Islands of Privacy that I have right in front of me. And the, the book cover is great. It's like this wood with uh, you know, like a like a like a tree, and then it's got a knot, and then you see this eye looking out at you. So we are going to talk about Islands of Privacy by Christina Nippert-Ang, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her background. She is a Ph.D., and she is the Associate Professor of Sociology and Acting Chair of the Department of Social Sciences at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. Her areas of research expertise include cognitive sociology, Culture, everyday life, micro-sociobiology, social psychology, privacy, which we're going to talk about today, uh, gender, the home, time, and space technology, ethnography, and the western lowland gorillas of the Lincoln Park Zoo. I have to ask her about that because I have been to the Lincoln Park Zoo. Dr nippert Eng's work has been featured extensively in the media including the radio which we're so pleased to have her television and newspaper interviews ranging from npr's talk of the nation to programs on pbs and msnbc and stories for the new york times the wall street journal newsweek working mother and fast company she's been an invited speaker for various and uh, diverse venues As the Smithsonian Museum, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, uh, Pediatric Group, uh, Reason Magazine's Dynamic Visions Conferences, the Mother Read, Father Lead Literary Organization, and the Industrial Design Society of America. She teaches film, project field, and lectures basically on uh, various courses at ITT. Currently, she's a visiting faculty member at Samosa Maschis Copenhagen Institute for International Design in Denmark, and she enjoys an ongoing relationship with the Instituto de Artes Visuales in Lisbon, Portugal. I don't know if I said that right. I speak Spanish. And she serves on the counseling committee for the doctoral program and on the editorial board for the... Uh, let's see, the Radical decenist, uh Journal of Design Culture. She's also on the editorial board of the International Journal of Design, edited by Ling Chen at the Graduate Institute of Design, National Taiwan University of Science and Technology. So what an incredibly vast and interesting background, and you can learn more about her book and her at islandsofprivacy.com. Thank you, Christina, for joining us today all the way from the Midwest. Thank you
1: so much for having me, Mari.
0: Well, I find this book fascinating. And so, first of all, why don't we talk about how is it that you decided to write this book, Islands of Privacy?
1: Well, I think that I've been interested in privacy for a long time Um, And some of the work that I had done on other issues came to the attention of the um, folks at the Intel Research Council, which is um, a little bit like people might know that a place like Bell Laboratories, um, the R&D Center for um, different kinds of corporations, HP has them. Intel has one, too. And they got interested in my work and said, what would you like to study? And I said, are you kidding? I'd love to study privacy. And they said, well, we'd love to give you some money to do that. So we were off and running.
0: Well, that is fascinating. You know, I noticed in this book, you got people to answer a lot of questions that were very private, and they revealed very private information, you know, everything from about, and I'm not going to tell too much, but about you know, masturbating when they were young to having a, a tampon get stuck inside them. I mean, this is just people talking, and I, I don't want to tell, but it is it is very fascinating. It might be, get people excited at least to uh, sex cells, But, um, you know, but how did you do that? I mean, I saw the questions, but how is it that they were willing to open up so much to you?
1: Well, first, I have to give credit also to uh, some of the graduate students who worked with me, I had a couple of other uh, women who I trained in interviewing, and some of those people were talking to them, um, and some of those people were talking to me. So um, there was, I think, a general tenor of the interviews and of the people who were asking the questions that just seemed to immediately get people very comfortable. I I think that... um, In general, in my experience in interviewing people, uh, they make up their minds very quickly if they trust you or not. Um, And people who, who don't trust you are going to be fairly reserved in the kinds of questions they're willing to answer and the kinds of answers they're willing to give you. And other people decide very, very quickly that they actually want to be helpful to your study that they think there's this amazing story that they could tell you that would be helpful to you, and they offer this information up. Um, I had amazingly generous people participating in this study, and it produced a wealth of, I think, very surprising
0: stories. Yes, yes. (laughs) Now, did you ever, did you have people who say, I don't want to answer that question?
1: Um, Sometimes people would, would uh, be a little bit reserved about something, but in general here's here's something that I think you'll find interesting, Maury. The only question, and there were over a hundred of them in the entire study we didn't try to ask over a hundred questions to every person, but most people wound up answering most of those that 's another piece of the story um, but there were there was one question um, that some people did not want to answer, and that was, what was their household income?
0: Right. Financial privacy,
1: right. Financial privacy, and, you know, they would wax eloquently about politics and religion and sex and all kinds of medical things, but the one question that they would say, oh, I'm so sorry, but I'd rather not answer that, Um, and and we had even set it up so that they didn't actually have to answer it face-to-face, but could fill out a little card, put the card in an envelope and seal it and hand it to the interviewer. And even with that sort of a a little bit of a choreography, they still didn't want to answer that one. And that's the only one.
0: And, Christina, that is just so ironic, isn't it? Because that's the one piece that our financial privacy is sold behind our back all the time. Yeah. And totally. you know, like you know your credit reports are seen by your insurance company they're seen by you know all of the creditors that you want to do business with your banks, your bank share information and so it's it's so ironic that's the one thing that we really have very little privacy about is our financial privacy mm-hmm. and that's yeah, uh, the
1: one thing that people are so protective of
0: yes and and you know we have some you know, some control about opting out of Mm -hmm. having our information sold. And if you are on top of it enough to opt out and there are some laws that allow us to have uh, at least disclosure about the the financial privacy, but a lot of it really isn't transparent. And so here we are, you're saying all these people that were worried about it. And that is something that is bought and sold and shared every day.
1: The time without all the even time. Realize, it might not even be until you go to refinance your house that you find out somebody else even has been fooling around in your finances and you've now been a victim of identity theft too right exactly
0: exactly <laughs> and and that is you know so and talk about a privacy invasion that I deal with all the people with that yeah. but that that is fascinating now when before you did this study um Did you tell them, like, we will not share your name? What were some of the, uh, you know, kind of like admonitions that you tell them ahead of time? Like, you absolutely won't be identified, your name won't be identified, or what kinds of things did you tell them?
1: Right, all of those things, which, um, you know, if you're an academic and you have a grant to study something, we all must be reviewed and approved by um, institutional review boards who are looking to make sure that we're conducting our research in an ethical way that's going to protect um, uh, the identities of our um, informants as well as the things that they tell us themselves. So all of those things are, I think, routinely, um, uh, you routinely have to address those if you do the kind of research that I do. Um, But some of the other ways that I go about trying to do this particularly as a writer um, and protecting people's identity, I find what I have to keep in mind is the people who know them well. Because it's the people who know my conversance well who are going to be most likely to be able to piece together various things when they read it and say oh, my God, I know who she's talking about.
0: Right, right. So
1: it's really not strangers so much that I'm protecting them from, but, you know, folks who are their friends and their family members. So one thing that I I did throughout the study was every question was not directly about how do you feel or what happened to you. I would phrase it as do you know something that happened to someone? Right. It could be somebody else. It could be yourself. So my interest was in the stories more than who it was precisely that these things might have happened to. And then also um, an individual, I routinely change details about them and change details both in their stories and in the ways that I'm uh, reporting those stories and using them, um, where it doesn't change the point of the story, but it protects their identity.
0: Right. So so some of those, you know, pretty outrageous things that people told you, because <laughs> <Right. laughs> I was worried thinking that do they know this is going to be in a book? You yeah, know? they
1: sure did. And they and they signed up for it. But, you know, I, I, and you know, this too, Mari, is that we often, in principle, agree to things and we think that we understand what we're getting into and it's only as it goes on that we really start to understand. Right. And only when you finish the interview or finished filling out the application or whatever it is, and you go, holy cow, did I really just share that with that person? <laughs> right. And at that point, you're really at the mercy of whoever has that information and their goodwill and their uh, desire to look out for you. So
0: right, right. I like to
1: think that. We had a lot of goodwill and a lot of desire to look out for people on this Right. well I, you know that's
0: what I was worried about do these people see when they see their stories and are they getting are they getting upset when they see that because there's some of them that are pretty you know pretty intimate stories and uh so the,
1: the usual reaction that I've gotten though is that um you know, they're laughing, and and they're also saying, oh, my God, that's so me. I I totally said that, and it's so funny to see it like that. Right. Um, And then what I get is I'm so happy that's out there, and I found out that it's not just me. There are all these other people who do the same thing or who think the same thing or who've had something similar happen to them. Right. Of course, that's always a nice part about doing good sociology is that an individual's story taps into and opens up much broader patterns that are out there among more people.
0: Right. And, you know, a lot of what we talk about on this show is information privacy, which you did talk about in, in, you know, when you were talking about financial privacy and when you were talking about cell phones and surveillance and technology, because we do talk about a lot of those things. And and there are shows that I've done that are about the personal privacy, like what you talked about as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I found myself when I was reading it kind of thinking about privacy things that happened to me when I was young. You know, and things that I was humiliated about. You know? <laughs> right,
1: and and those are such critical teaching moments for us. Um, I think that you know one of the reasons that I wanted to the first substantive chapter in the book is looking at information privacy and the management of information and how critical that is for our personal sense of privacy. So, looking at secrets and looking at secrecy and all those childhood stories. I mean, there are some humdinger stories from the adult part of people's lives. But right, right, There are quite a few from those formative years where they're really learning what is the work of secrets, what can you get away with, what can't you get away with, what happens to you if, you know, something that might be absurd when you're 30 years old, but when you're 7 or 8, if this got out, um, devastating. Yeah, it's devastating. So you 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 learn in in the school of hard knocks about how to manage information, at least at a face to face level. You know, the electronic side of things is very different right now, but it builds off of those models that we learned starting from the moment that you know we were probably two or three years old, and we wanted to have our first secret from somebody um, that's what I, I very much wanted to do with this book was to say okay we all know this stuff we all manage privacy every day let's look at the most fundamental ways in which we do privacy and then you know later we'll put the twist on it about electronic privacy and all of that stuff but what what are those lessons that we get from such a young age that, that carry on with us for the rest of our lives
0: Yeah, that reminded me, you know, I I thought a fun thing would, uh, would be I went back to Chicago to where all my family lives. And we had like a family reunion when my son got his MBA from the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had a party. And at the party, I had friends and I had cousins and I brought my recorder with me. And I was interviewing people. The man on the street, so to speak, which is kind of like what you did as a mm-hmm, sociologist, right. rather than the experts that I'm always talking with. And I just had this record, and I went up to each person and I said, "What does privacy mean to you?" Wow! Just to see what they would say. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of them were relatives, but a lot of them were friends. And the the funniest one I got was my nephew, who was like I think ten or eleven when I did that. And um, I said, "What does privacy mean to you?" And and we did, we had it on the radio, and he says. It means that no one goes in my backpack.
1: <laughs> very
0: cool. <laughs> it wasn't that cute? I thought that was so great. I said, "Oh, you are so brilliant, Kirk. I just love it." Very and, nice. Yeah, and and he it was very very cute because each person said something really different, right. and it was it was unique. So let's talk about what privacy means to you because you talk about privacy in the beginning, and then you talk about secrets and and the difference. So let's kind of clarify your definition of privacy and i thought it was interesting because you had some uh, a whole kind of a list of of what people said was privacy and uh, you got three of them here right Uh, you know i'm looking at it that i thought that was interesting uh what does privacy mean to you which is a question you asked Mm -hmm. and um so we can go over like for you christina what is what is privacy and then we can talk about what is secrecy and what's the difference
1: right so i i think that um We sort of start with um, a very consistent theme that privacy has to do with controlling access to whatever the private thing is. Um, And the condition of privacy exists when people feel as if they have good control over the things that they want to be private, and, um, and, and considering that there's a range in which things can be private. So there are some things which are private, but they're not super, super private. And there are other things which are, you know, so private, maybe you don't even want to admit them or, or think them to yourself. Um, so there's a range there. But in general, people were, were consistent with the idea that they have good privacy when the things they want to be private are as private as they want them to be. Now, that's a very uh, uh, historically emergent way of thinking about privacy. Um, uh, Some of the other people that you've had on your show actually have done brilliant work on the history of the concept of privacy here in the U.S. And in that sort of warm-up question that I had for uh, the people in the study, what does privacy mean to you, you can see these historical layers of how we think about privacy. Um, And so in that first and most popular layer, it's really about controlling access to a thing, to a time, a space, a part of your body, an idea, whatever the object is, it's about controlling access to it.
0: And and deciding who gets what access.
1: Exactly. And, And this is done on a very, very... Per person per situation basis this is a highly situational highly contextual decision Um, and so you can see people doing the work of privacy dozens if not a hundred times a day because every single time that there's something that they think of as private they have to make a decision if it's challenged or, or, you know, if they're going to manage it in some kind of way, they must make a decision about, okay, I'll let this person know that about me, but nobody else. Right. Or I'll let this person now, because I'm in the doctor's office and I'm sick, and I think it might be related to this thing that I did last week, but I'm not going to let anybody else know about right. that. Um, it could be because it's my spouse, it's my boyfriend, it's my best friend, whoever, Um, And so you see this this, uh, constant, constant decision-making process of who is allowed access to whatever this thing is and how much access and for what purpose.
0: And then the the privacy invasion is when... Or the privacy uh, intrusion, whatever you want to call it, is when when you think you've made that decision and you've done everything you can. Like the woman in the beginning of the book, she thought she did everything possible to have that privacy, that that place to be alone. When her little daughter jumps out from under the bed at, a, right. at an inopportune time, but you know, but then there's also like when you're on Facebook. Okay, mm-hmm. and you're a teenager and you think that you've only shared something with your friends and then those friends share with others or some other company is actually sharing that and it's not transparent and then you feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you.
1: Absolutely. And and so this, this thing of, you know, how do you get good privacy then? How do you actually operationalize that? Well, you've got all of these decisions that you're making. And those decisions are about selectively concealing and selectively disclosing, or or selectively revealing, um, granting access in some way on a very, very selective basis. And so that's how we feel like that's the, that's the model that we grow up thinking, yep, that's how I get privacy. I am my own privacy manager and I selectively go about giving access, denying access in various kinds of ways, and that's how I have good privacy. And you do that, and in good faith you think everything's fine, and then all of a sudden whoop, you find out that somebody you never meant to see that or hear that or touch that or know that or whatever it is now has access to that, and that's where the violation comes in. And, and sometimes it can be, I, towards the end of the book, I, I use the example of, um, you know, let's say, you've got a new boyfriend and you call up your girlfriend and you're talking on the phone to your girlfriend and you're telling her all about your new boyfriend and everything's great and this goes on for a couple of weeks, you're in touch and you're chatting, and then all of a sudden you find out that your girlfriend, let's call her Linda Tripp, was recording Those conversations that you had with her, where you thought only your new boyfriend, your girlfriend, and you were the only three people who knew anything about this new boyfriend and everything you were doing with him. Well, she was not only recording that, but she handed those recordings over. And the next thing you know, you've got a subpoena, you've got people going through your closet, through your computer, through this is the definition of a violation of your privacy because, you know, here you were operating in a universe where you thought this stuff was private for weeks and weeks and weeks. You knew it was private, and whammo, you find out it was anything but.
0: Yes. And, you know, with technology now, it is making your ability to control that privacy and and who has access to that information about you, your ability is so depleted you know, we just had in the newspaper just recently, it I just was reading it, about this superintendent from Beverly Hills, okay? Uh, he was a superintendent of schools in Beverly Hills, mm-hmm. and um, apparently he had a woman working there, and um, she was earning a lot of money, and they had a nice relationship. So then he became superintendent of Newport Mesa School District down here in Orange County, where I live. He was using his his email account from the school district and they found all of his emails with this woman all right mm-hmm. and they were having all this big relationship and and she was getting bonuses for for things that were not part of the school district <laughs> and and they had in the paper their their conversation i mean about it was it was very suggestive a lot of things were extremely suggestive And then um, he had her mother had died and she wanted some time off and she wrote him an email and he goes, I guess, you know, kind of like really nasty. And then she was really mad. And then like two days later, she got a twenty thousand dollar bonus. This was her her his way to make it up to her. So, I mean, talk about I was thinking to myself, you're using email. That's an account that belongs to the school district you don't have an expectation of privacy. And that's what people think they do when they're using their text messages or they're using their emails. They think Correct. they have this because. expectation that it's private. And we're finding that there is no privacy in this there, technology.
1: There is, not. there is not. So their intent, their understanding, their framing of the situation is one thing. And the reality of it, because it's electronic communication, is Entirely different. And, you know, just as you were describing, you can't see me. I'm sitting here in my, in, in, at my desk here and I'm shaking my head back and forth. <laughs> you know, what were they thinking? But, I know, you know, I know, especially like, educated there, people. There, or, uh, yeah, there are a couple of, of uh, attorneys here in Chicago who I've talked to who, you know, it's a field day for e discovery because not only can you get all of this stuff, because nobody was thinking ahead and realizing how discoverable all of this is. You know, it doesn't take a Brett Favre to do this. You yeah. have very highly paid professionals who don't seem to clue in to how easy it is to trace and share all of this stuff. And then, of course, juries love it.
0: You know, yes, just yes. If
1: anybody reading the newspaper would be
0: gobbling yes, you know, th- that up. Right.
1: It's part of, of our species, we're, you know, very gossip-interested, Um, particularly about the kind of stuff that people say to each other under those circumstances. Right, right. You know, the the best advice, in fact, one of those attorneys, his best advice to everybody is, you never write anything in an email that you would not put on your practice's letterhead.
0: Right, right.
1: That's about the only way to, and, and for goodness sake, don't ever write anything when you're angry, and send it off to anybody. I would go beyond that. I would even say, you know, don't write anything and send it off when you're in any kind of an altered state. Yes. Whether it's because you're gaga in love with someone or you had too much to drink or you're angry or anything else, you better at least sit on that before you send it out because it's all discoverable. And, And the interesting thing, Mari, is that I think the kids who are growing up with Facebook, with all kinds of social media, with um, electronic communications in ways that my generation did not have, they are learning that lesson so much faster. And at such a younger age, um, we keep going on blundering around and, and getting caught in our own mistakes, just like you were describing. And they have to learn those things really early these days.
0: And, you know, I I did another show this year. Well, actually, it was at the end of uh, 2010, rather. And I did this show where I interviewed five different teenagers across the country. There was one from Chicago area, one from Boston, um, one from Iowa. And then I think there were two from California, one from Southern California, one from Northern California. And uh, I asked them how they use Facebook and what the concerns were and what the dangers. And the only thing that they got that they really understood was you don't talk to strangers. Mm-hmm. And then I asked this one kid who was just adorable. I said, well, how many friends do you have on Facebook? He has 600. I said, but you don't talk to strangers. No, I don't talk to strangers. <laughs> I said, how many of those people do you know face to face that you've actually met them in person? You know who they are. You know, then you kind of go, oh, you know. Yeah. So again, I think it's this lack of transparency, this, this desire and you know this better than i do the, the desire to connect yep and the de- and the desire to trust and to get involved and to 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 be a part of this group and and then not i i just think that there's something really missing in terms of how we're educating people because this technology is far beyond what we ever thought was going to really happen to privacy
1: yeah and and in interesting ways too because Sometimes it's that the technology hasn't gone far enough, and what I mean by that is Facebook is a perfect example of this, that, you know, you tell certain things to certain friends and not to others. You have different circles of friends. You have friends at work. You have friends at home. You have friends who you go to school with. You have friends who, you know, you see every year at summer camp. You have friends who you live next door to. They're all different circles of friends, and... Facebook doesn't allow you to do that. Someone is either a friend or they're not. So oh, right. Every single post that you put on Facebook is available to people, no matter how many degrees of friendship they are away from you. A friend is a friend is a friend. And, it, you know, it's a very, very performative venue. You post something, everybody looks at it. And one of the things that I've seen happening in Facebook posts over the last couple years, is that um, that knowledge, particularly with younger users, has led them to put less and less personal things in their Facebook posts. Now, they might make very personal accusations, some of them, you know, the the amount of bullying that goes on electronically is is really kind of horrifying. I think that one thing that that does is that it makes the issues of bullying uh, no longer deniable because the amount of damage is so uh, great and it happens so swiftly as opposed to, you know, just a bystander effect in the school ground. Kind
0: right, of thing. right, right, right. Um, it proliferates, so They're, they're yes. getting
1: less and less personal in what they're posting to some extent because they're realizing, um, you know, everybody's going to see this. If you really have something really private that you want to say, you don't know, use Facebook. You pick up your cell phone and you talk to your best friend.
0: Right. Or what they do usually is they just text them.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. You know,
0: and then the text is not <laughs> secure either.
1: You know, of course it's not. But, but everybody, you know, some of the IT professionals that I've spoken with, their philosophy on this is that, look, if everybody just puts everything out there, then nobody can get upset about anything because it means that we're all human and we all say, you know, stupid things and we all do stupid things and, and, you know, nobody is really going to be able to be singled out from the pack if it's all out there. But the fact of the matter is... I
0: I wouldn't agree with that ever. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I would never agree with that. it's
1: not all out there. Some people are extremely careful about it and other people who you know, maybe haven't gotten bit in the butt yet, <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> haven't learned to be careful about it. So,
0: And I think what you brought up, Christina, a few minutes ago is so important because maybe these young kids are not saying anything about themselves, but maybe a best friend who is no longer a best friend because you started dating that friend's boyfriend, mm-hmm. maybe they will reveal those confidences or those secrets and embarrass you.
1: And that's the whole point. And
0: and so, yeah, so even though you might not say anything, someone might say something about you.
1: Right. So we need to learn to think of the secret that you whisper to somebody on the playground or who you pass a note to in the classroom or in any other situation, that that secret is just the same as anything that you put in a text message Or in any other electronic form and if it gets in the wrong hands somebody who hates you somebody who wants to move up the social ladder at your expense whatever it happens to be that now becomes material that they can use against you yes at the same time that we understand that secrets are the currency of relationships that if we don't share intimate things with other people We can't become intimate with them. That's how we develop a closeness with other people is by sharing that stuff. But we do it very, very carefully face-to-face. And I don't know that at least my generation hasn't figured out that you need to have the same care if you're doing it electronically. Yes. We're speaking
0: with a wonderful professor, a great privacy expert, Christina nippert Eng. She is a Ph.D., and she is an associate professor of sociology and acting chair of the Department of Social Sciences at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, and she has a wonderful new book out that we've been talking about. It's called Islands of Privacy. It's really pretty fascinating. Great stories, and then at the end, she also has the questions that she asks, and then I thought what was really funny that you had, Christine, uh, Christina, is you had at the very end, like, kind of like ways that you can protect your privacy and ways that you would reveal your privacy, kind of that list <laughs> that I thought was kind of interesting. But before we go on, I have to ask you about the gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I've been wanting to do that. I wrote myself a note. Ask about the gorillas and what you're doing with the Western lowland gorillas of the Lincoln Park Zoo because uh, I am thrilled well, with gorillas.
1: I, I love them all dearly. I have to say that I started... Um, In the very late 90s, I started uh, teaching a course in behavioral observation. So it's really a course to teach people how to be better at looking and at being able to figure out what's going on just by looking. And so I wanted to find a way to do that where we wouldn't be looking at people because we don't see so much of what people do by the time we get to be adults. Um, And so I decided, ooh, Let's get going. And we went to the Shedd Aquarium. I'll bet you've been there.
0: Too. Yes, I have.
1: Yeah, we started with fish there, and eventually wound up over at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And uh, there are two troops of western lowland gorillas, and one community of chimps at the Lincoln Park Zoo right now. So um, I've been teaching this course there, and in the in the process, getting to know these gorillas very well, and find them completely fascinating. Um, even from a privacy angle, Mari. That's what I was going
0: to ask you. What kind of privacy do the gorillas have? They,
1: you know, they try to make their own privacy and certainly from each other. Um, If we talk about controlling space and controlling access to objects that you have um, and controlling what it is that you're doing at a particular time, um, you know, in terms of the schedule, you can see some very, very basic uh, behaviors. We definitely have a common ancestor. And when you, when you um, know what to look for, you very quickly see, wow, we are primates when it comes to our privacy and how we tried to do that.
0: Exactly. They are. I've seen so many of these on the, on the, you know, the discovery channel. I just they're just so fascinating. what, what fun that is to, to teach that class and take the class there and go there. I mean, that's amazing. When we get back to this issue of privacy, I, I thought it was interesting for you to perhaps explain to us the difference between privacy and secrets, because mm. you kind of go into two different ways, and, it, and I thought that was, would be important.
1: Right. So why I, be, I was interested in secrets for uh, two reasons initially. One was because I wanted to really understand the management of sensitive information. And a secret is a piece of sensitive information. Um, And it's defined as sensitive information by the person who makes the secret. So um, we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, Secrets are different from information which is simply unshared for instance, unshared information could be, you know, what I had for breakfast this morning. I haven't shared that with you. doesn't mean it's a secret. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't share it with you. I just haven't. Right. secret, on the other hand, is something that you've made an active decision that for whatever reason, this is a piece of information that you don't want somebody else to find out, and then you uh, embark on probably a series of events a series of activities that are designed to keep that piece of information from being accessed from a variety of, of other people and in a variety of ways. So, the thing that's um, the the second aspect of secrets that interested me is that I was, of course, interested in private things, and secrets are really the most private of our private things. Of all the private things that we have, these are the ones that we most actively and with a most concerted effort try to protect. Now, there's lots of stuff that we think of as private um, that we don't go to any great extent to protect. We might rely on other people's lack of interest. You know, if they don't care what I had for breakfast, they're not going to ask, so right. I don't even have to think about how am I going to keep that private. Or they might be oblivious. You know, they're so wrapped up in their own life and what they had for breakfast, they don't even care what I had. Great. Or they might have been raised very well, and they have good manners, and maybe their mother taught them, you don't ask what people had for breakfast, dear. If they want to tell you, they'll offer that up. So yeah. there are lots of ways in which we get to have privacy that don't actually involve us actively trying to do it. Secrets, on the other hand, we're leaving nothing to chance. These are the things that we say, nope, I do not want people to know about that. And then you start figuring out what it is that you have to do in order to keep that private thing as private as you want it to be. Right.
0: Now, I, I thought people might be wondering, why did you name your book Islands of Privacy? I, you go into the first chapter and you kind of explain about islands versus the ocean. And I thought it was an interesting analogy. And then you're talking about, you know, going down to North Beach, which is not an ocean. It's the it's, <laughs> it happens to be like an ocean that Lake right. Michigan can look like an ocean at times. But right. why don't you explain what you were talking about and, and you're kind of overview of of this with the boundaries and everything. I thought that was fascinating.
1: Okay, so um, it it seemed to me that the the metaphor that was capturing the sense of what is more and less accessible and how these things come together, for me, that was the idea of an island um, in which the island represents those that thing or those things that are truly private. And it is surrounded by an ocean and an ocean of accessibility. And as you walk down toward the shore of the island, you you know first get your big toe wet and then up to your ankles and then to your calves and your knees. And eventually, the farther out you go into the ocean, you're in well over your head and you are truly out there in the realm of the public. And so today it feels to many of the people that I interviewed, if not all of them, as if life is really about these very few islands of privacy that still remain, which are scattered and uh, kind of far between, um, definitely decreasing in how many islands we have and the size of each of those islands, amidst an ever-growing, encroaching ocean of accessibility that we're in. So uh, what that meant for me is that what I was very much interested in was the boundary between the island and the ocean. And that is where you see conflict, because while everybody might have a sense of what's really private and what's on that island and what's way out there in the middle of the ocean... It's right along the beach that you see um, contests over whether this thing really is private or not, whether it should be private or not, how private it is. And this is where you see people actively every single day trying to do things to make sure that whatever they want to be on the island is on the island and other people stay off it. Um, While on the other side of things, other people may be trying their best to insist that whatever that is is really much more public um, than maybe the, the individual would prefer it to be. So in terms of the boundary between what's private and what's public, I was interested in the beach and uh, this is where you see people fighting over you know, okay, there's water here, but how much water? And should we be paying attention to the water side of it or the land side of it that's underneath? Is this um, um, a place where we can see all kinds of professionals who are engaged in their professional work. Um, many attorneys who are busy right along the waterfront there, trying to keep a boundary between what should be and what is private, um, and what should and is uh, what should be and what is public. So that was what I was interested in that beach right there.
0: And you know, one of the thing that one of the things that really complicates this all is when we talk about personal information, who owns it. And in this country, it appears that these companies that collect our personal information, whether it's our financial information or information about our lives, you know, when they do these profiles that are complete mm-hmm. dossiers on us because they, they follow us around and track us on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, they think that once they have that information, it belongs to them.
1: Right. If they've got it, they own it. Right. And and that was another reason that I wanted to look so carefully at the work of secrets. Um, one of the things that became very apparent is, as sifting through all of this stuff um, so in the work of secrets, I, I think about the work involved in making a secret and keeping a secret, the work of revealing a secret, and the work of um, finding out somebody else's secret. And in all of that, throughout all of that, there is the work of making decisions about all of this. And one of the most important factors, probably the first, the, the, the first point of entry in deciding what to do about a secret is this question of who owns the secret, who owns that information. And for the people that I spoke with, when it came to secrets, if they felt that they owned that secret, that is, they gave birth to the secret, and it was theirs and theirs only to decide what was going to happen next with it, that was the most important thing. And then... Figuring out what they were going to do about it next, if they did not feel as if they owned the secret, that they had no moral claim to it, or that they only had a a joint moral claim to it, then morally speaking, they didn't have a right to decide what to do with that secret next. You know, in order to to plow, uh, you know, a, a quarter of a million secrets into the WikiLeaks site. You have to actually feel like you have ownership over those secrets, right? If you don't feel like you have ownership over it under this model, then you would never do that because you're, everything that you've been raised to think from the time that you were a child says that is not yours to do anything with. You can't touch it. so you you get this very, very clear sense that among normal people living everyday lives ownership over information is incredibly important to them in terms of what's allowed to be done next with that information
0: and that's such a disconnect with the way our totally. our society is dealing with it unlike the european union where Correct. your personal information belongs to you totally. so when you think about for example healthcare privacy me, for example, something that just recently happened to me, I had an accident and I had um, broken some bones and, Yikes. and I had to have some surgery. And long story short, I wanted copies of my medical records. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was getting them from not my own insurance carrier but for the insurance carrier for the the doctor that messed up on me after I <laughs> had the surgery. Yeah. So um I I asked that the medical records be sent to me and she said to me do you want them emailed to you and I said yeah I would like them emailed to me because I'll get them quicker but only if you encrypt them and then call me with the password. Right. Because that's how I send everything. Right. See, I don't have problems with emails because I don't put anything confidential in it. I put attachments that I encrypt. And Mm -hmm. so my clients have learned that. They know what their own unique password is. And that's how I do it. So I said, I would really prefer to get it electronically. I said, and she said, Well, I don't know how to do it, but our IT department does. And I said, Okay, great. So that afternoon I got them unencrypted. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when we talk about healthcare privacy, does does my Do my medical records, are those going to be considered private enough that they belong to me? Okay, I mean, that's what we're saying, that everybody considers health care and health privacy really their own stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And look at what's happening with technology. And and what we what I worry about with is these electronic electronic medical records that are going to be transferred all over the heck.
1: Well, this is going to be very cold comfort, but um, you know the the concern over privacy with electronic medical records. Privacy in medical records is not new to the electronic era, and um, I was involved in a study where we were looking into um, this very issue, and so we wanted to understand how it was that a local hospital was managing medical records um, on, on paper form um, so that we could then understand what would need to happen in order for them to manage them electronically. And privacy and maintaining privacy was one of our concerns. So we go to the hospital and there we are in these you know, central places where patients are coming up and reporting for their appointments and leaving and, and doing all sorts of things. And um, all you have to do is just look in the trash can. And here were people's names and Social Security numbers at the bottom right-hand side of this X-ray uh, all over every single piece of paper that had been generated out of a printer and just tossed in the, into the trash. There was no shredding. There was no... And all of these things were collected. We, we followed through and, and looked at the, the garbage process you know, from my book, I'm very interested in trash management and, right, and right. privacy of, of information that way. You know, those things were then dumped in dumpsters that had wide open tops. The Chicago winds would come through and whip the documents out of there. They were strewn all over the parking lot. And, mm. you know, so, so I think that the, the issue of electronic privacy with medical records to some extent, it's a little bit like cyberbullying in that it suddenly makes you go, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know, maybe we've had these issues all along that we haven't really been treating people's records as privately as we should have. And now this is really pushing the issue. And right, right.
0: Because now it. it can be transferred and shared and yep. hacked you know, in so many more ways. It's, it's a like quick, the exposure single is... Button,
1: you yeah. can forward this stuff all over the place.
0: Yeah, so the exposure is myriad places, so right. it's crazy.
1: And, and that's the counter, right? Because what, what people are doing every day to get privacy is this selective concealment and disclosure, and the violation is the exposure. Right. Right. That's when somebody else or something else happens that puts this out there. And you didn't want it to be that way.
0: Right. And you know, what's funny for me is that people did not really get the idea or the issue of the lack of privacy in so many ways. I mean, they, they kind of poo-poo it until they become a victim of identity theft. You know, privacy is the overall umbrella and identity theft is really the fallout when there right. is no privacy. Right. And so that's why you've seen so much in the news about identity theft. And that's that really drove us to get a lot of the privacy legislation that we've gotten in California and at the federal level yes. is because when people experience the the total you know, uh, invasion of one's life or cloning of one's life <laughs> because of this, that's when people say, oh my goodness, well, gee, maybe we should pay attention to privacy.
1: And the thing about I, identity theft and, and um, you know, a whole category of privacy violations like that, I was very interested in how it is that some people are victims of identity theft and, you know, they kind of shrug and go ah oh, these things happen you know other people are absolutely devastated they're they're floored by what has happened to them
0: now yeah, but, that, but let me tell you the reason why okay mm, because yeah. if it's if it's just using your credit card and there's fraud on your credit card exactly. it's annoying it's nothing but when you have something like What I have people call me, they usually call me if they buy my book and they they've used the letters and everything's cool. They don't call me, but they call me when nothing works. It's because they're a victim of criminal identity theft or the IRS is act after them or some. I have one guy who called me just yesterday. There's 12 people working in his name across the country and he's getting problems with the IRS and he tried to get unemployment and he couldn't. So it depends to how it's it if it's more than just a credit card or a debit card. I mean, debit card is a far worse. But depending on how it's used, Or financial privacy can be not too bad if it's just credit. But healthcare privacy—if you have a whole, uh, someone has gotten healthcare in your name—and yeah. and, and, you know, it's like your blood type is now considered a different blood type. Yeah, and know? and
1: that you have some kind of pre-existing conditions that right. belong to this other person right. who is pretending to be you so that they could get your your health benefits. I think that the thing about these violations in general is that right you have the practical side of this which is exactly you know this huge range of you know what you can shrug off and what becomes completely debilitating in terms of getting on with your life. Right. But there's also this emotional, symbolic side of having your privacy violated. And that emotional or symbolic side boils down to the way that we really think about privacy in the States, which is that, you know, any citizen has a right to it. And for somebody else to invade your privacy and to do so in one of these much more debilitating kinds of ways is a very symbolic statement that somehow their, their right to do that matters more than your right to not have it done to you. Right. And that somehow the, um, um, the, the idea that a good citizen is entitled to good privacy gets pulled out right out from underneath you. And and when you have institutions that are not responding and are not being helpful, when you have, you know, an endless line of things going wrong, wrong, wrong because of this criminal act that this other person did, and you can't somehow get on top of it. There's a, a, a very long story about identity theft um, in my book, in the, in the chapter on what we carry in our wallets and purses right. and how we use that, and... Um, this is one of those stories. I mean, this woman was was just driven into the deepest depression. She was told to declare bankruptcy. She lost her job. She lost her credit rating. She lost everything because of this case of identity theft. And at that point, none of the institutions would believe that this was a case of identity theft. Right. So when when you're you know, running through all of these kinds of blocks over and over again.
0: That's when you call me. <laughs>
1: yeah, you got it. <laughs> no,
0: seriously, that's when people call me and, and say, Mari, I am just, I mean, nobody is believing me. Yeah. And and that is, they've been totally cloned. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a horrible situation. And I think that goes to the whole issue of this, this privacy. There is no control. You can't control this information. It's beyond your control.
1: So well, the interesting thing that allows it to be beyond your control is that, first of all, the people who are designing the technology yes. are may not be interested in this at all.
0: Which leads you to, to that whole issue that's becoming uh, very big now, which is privacy by design. Mm-hmm. In other words, building into the architecture of new technology, privacy. So yes. people think about it at the time that they are actually creating the technology.
1: Correct. And, and I actually have an article by that very title. Oh, <laughs> you'll have to send it, it to me. Yeah. I, I just love that, you know, we've finally gotten to the point where it's that and, and that there are enough advocates out there who are saying, look, your privacy should not be something that you have to opt in for. Right. Everybody should be granted it. If you don't want privacy, you should be able to opt out. Yeah, but it's, <laughs>
0: it's not that way, obviously. And it should be
1: very easy, easy, easy to do so using the kinds of, of very common and ages-old metaphors that we're used to from the face-to-face part of the universe. We should be able to translate that into the virtual universe and be able to manage our privacy in very similar ways.
0: Well, we are just about out of time, Christina. This has been so fun, and I really enjoy your book, and I I hope that our listeners will take a look at it, Islands of Privacy, and they can go to islandsofprivacy.com, and they can learn more about you also there. And does that also link to the website for uh, Illinois, your... um... Institute of Technology, it sure does. Oh, terrific. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. You've been a terrific guest, and uh, you're from my hometown, so <laughs> that's even more fun. So we will keep in touch and have you back again. Send me that article on the privacy by design or the you know the architecture, sure. and I would love that. And so we will, we, we will have people go to islandsofprivacy.com by Christina Nippert-Ang. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here. And look at our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. See our upcoming guests. Look at their bios. Look at their websites. Download previous interviews. And download your... um, podcasts to have some fun with it. And of course, email us about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Goodbye. Stay private.
1: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.